Welcome to Chapters, the podcast where we hear the stories of readers' lives through the books that have meant the most to them. I'm Mary Mahoney, and today I'm talking with Kathy Van Voorhees. Kathy is a graduate of James Madison University in Harrisburg, Virginia, and Washington University School of Law in St. Louis, Missouri. Today, she is a practicing attorney in St. Louis. More importantly for this podcast, Kathy is a lifelong reader. From the mixed-up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler to the novels of Stephen King and beyond, books have helped Kathy understand her world and her place within it. This is her story. Uh, Well, thank you so much again for being on the show. It's so wonderful to have you here. Um, And I guess I want to start the show by asking what I ask all my guests, which is, what is your earliest memory of reading? And maybe you could tell me a little bit about where you're from. So I grew up generally in the Washington, D.C. suburbs. But when I was really little, um, my parents were both really young when I was born. They were both students. And we lived in... Um, Charlottesville, Virginia. They were both at the University of Virginia. And my first memories of books were so I would have been at this point like two, three. And I just remember, um, you know, different picture books that I had in reading. And there was, oh God, now I can't remember this one. It was like, where does the bear go? When, the, when there was something like that. And there was one, I can still picture the books. And there was one about like a prince and the seven moons. Those are like the earliest books I remember. But then, um, my memories of, I remember like getting my first books as gifts that were like my books to have my, after my parents graduated. And then we moved to, um, like Fairfax, Virginia. Uh, I remember my father coming home from business trips and he would bring me a book. Like I remember getting the Lorax by Dr. Seuss and I must've been like four. Um, and, uh, one of the favorite things, my favorite things he got me was the Charlie Brown dictionary, hmm. because whenever I read a book, I would always have a dictionary next to me because I always wanted to look up any, any word I didn't know. Um, and, and I was an early, relatively early reader. And then I would teach my little brother how to read, which I don't know if I really taught him or if he just memorized the Dr. Seuss books I was <laughs> giving him to, but, um, because I was, we played, you know, I was always being the teacher and, and making him play school. But those are some of my very early memories um, with reading. And then, uh, you know, we moved, I moved around a lot as a kid. I went to six different elementary schools over six years. And so, wow. and I was kind of a more introverted kid. So I just read a lot. Um, and that's, was sort of my <laughs> my comfort and in moving around and, and things like that. And it took solace in books, but um, so and I'm trying to. When I was in elementary school, I read things like uh, you know A Wrinkle in Time and the some of the C.S. Lewis series, the Chronicles of Narnia. And um, I had then when I was in fifth grade, we had a teacher who would like read to us in class, and she introduced us to some of my favorite books. Um, I'm trying to think that, Oh, where the red fern grows. And, oh, yeah. um, Oh, Mrs. Frisbee and the rats of Nim, which I just loved. Um, what is that? Then, of course, what is so, that book? Oh, Nim is the national institutes of mental health. It's like the acronym. And I knew that was, you know, in the DC area, there are so many like governmental agencies, but it is a book about a group of mice and rats that were like lab mice and lab rats at the instant at NIM, the National Institute of Mental Health, and they ha- somehow, I don't remember everything now, but somehow they were like, super intelligent, had took on almost human intelligence, and they escaped. And so then they lived, um, they went, they escaped and got out to this farm, and it's just the story of their survival, like on the farm, but they're, you know, inventing things and creating things <laughs> and living. And it's Mrs. Frisbee is actually a mouse, and her husband had, um, I think her husband, the mouse, died, but she was friends because her husband had been one of the escape mice. I don't know who she was, but the rats that escaped, too, they were all friends. And so it's just the story of them 
living in this area. That's as much as I remember. It's been you know, 30 that years since cool. I read the book. But it's fascinating. <laughs> Although I think I did get it and read it to my daughter when she was younger. That's but that, cool. um, So you're in fifth there... grade when you read that. What do you think stuck out to you about that book in fifth grade? I mean, where, is this the period when you're moving around and going to a new school each year? So we had pretty much settled, but then I actually did go to a different school for sixth grade, but that wasn't because of a physical move. It was like something some magnet program I got pulled into or something. But, um, but yes, this is when I was moving around. I had a really good friend in fourth and fifth grade, but then she moved away. Then sometimes we would, you know, exchange books and things, but, um, and that's when I was reading like a wrinkle in time. And every year for Christmas, I would get primarily books and I would get, they'd always have like this Newberry set of like four or five award-winning books. And, you know, there'd be a couple in there that were interesting and, and I'd go through and read some of those. But I also read the um a lot of Nancy Drews and uh the uh what was the Anne of Green Gables. Oh, oh yeah. and when in the summer, and this is when I was younger, we would spend time at my grandparents' house in Pennsylvania and my grandmother, they had books, I think that had been there since my dad and his brothers and sisters were kids, but I would read the books up there. I would read like the boxcar kids and they had some, you know, Hardy boys and Nancy Drew, but, um, Mrs. Pickle Wiggle stories, which I loved. And there were like three or four Mrs. Pickle Wiggle books. Do you know those books? I do. But do you want to give a little description of them for people who may not be familiar? So Mrs. Pickle Wiggle is like this magical woman who lives in an upside down house. who doesn't have any kids, but like all the kids in the neighborhood are, um, come to her house and, and she, I, she would give eventually, you know, the parents came to like know and trust her and she would come up with like cures for kids with issues. Like I remember there was one kid who like would just eat really tiny, teeny little bites. And so she had the parents just put his food on smaller and smaller, tiny plates until he got really hungry and then would eat normally. And there was one little girl who never, ever wanted to take a bath. And she told the parents like, okay, don't make her take a bath. And so eventually there's so much like dirt caked up on this little girl. And then she tells the parents, okay, put like three radish seeds on her forehead when she goes to bed. (laughs) And the girl wakes up in a few days and it's like sprouting radishes and she's, you know, traumatized and pulls out the roots and then, you know, I'll never not bathe again. And then she's, you know, so there were always, and there was like a greedy kid that she had a cure for that and all these different things, but they were just, you know, little stories, but my grandmother would read them to me and I just loved that time. And, um, it's just remembering those books brings so many memories of being in their house and spending time with them. Yeah. was reading something you used even at that young age to kind of relate to people in your life, whether it was your grandmother or making new friends or yes. your parents. Yes. And even life situations. So, you know, I had a brother who was two and a half years younger and we were very close because we were, and my parents divorced when I was young and, um, they both remarried. So there was a lot of just, not just physical moves, but a lot of things changing. Um, and one of the books I loved was the, from the mixed up files of Mrs. Basley, Frank Weiler, mm. the story about a, a, you know, a girl in elementary school and her little brother, and they run away from home and go to the New York museum. I think it's of natural history. And they like live in one of the rooms there and they like sneak out during the day. And at one point they decide to take a bath and they go in one of the fountains and they find money in the fountain where people have thrown their coins in and they use that money to go. I mean, they'd saved up their allowance, but then they use that money to buy more food and they're just sort of surviving there. And then while they're there, they solve this mystery about, um, now I can hear about a painting or something that were, were in the mixed up files of Ms. Basley Frankweiler, where the name comes from. But I think reading that book and I was thinking, I was like, okay, so I've got me and my brother and it just gave me like faith, like, okay, if something happened, like I could take care of the two of us, like we could do this, you know, and so I think it was definitely, I I mean, I don't think it was conscious, but in looking back, it definitely was a way that I could um, like make sense of my world was through, through books Hmm. and and the stories. Do you remember other books that you remember thinking were not were not books directed to you or given to you to read, but books that you found yourself kind of like the book you just described and thought, you know, this is this book it belongs to me. It speaks to my life in this moment. It's giving me something I need. 
It's funny because the so another book I would say that about, but in a different way, was A Wrinkle in Time because that obviously I loved. I had to feel this the sense of like supernatural. Like I've always been fascinated a little bit by that. In fact, I've always been fascinated by time travel and books that deal with time travel. And looking back over my life at various stages, I've always read different books that focus on that issue. Um, and when I read the books, it was a wrinkle in time. And then the other two came out now, I think there are five, but I just knew a wrinkle in time. And what was it? A swiftly tilting planet and a wind in the door for the ones that were around when I was reading them. But those were books that just, I don't know, it just made me feel like the, there was something out in the world and gave me sort of a sense of wonder in that, mm. So that helped in a different way. I mean, obviously that wasn't something practical like the, like I, well, not necessarily practical, but that I felt from this, like from the book where the, the kids run away and can survive on their own. But that gave me I don't know, just some reassurance of, of a bigger world. Yeah. Do you think that's why uh, kids and even adults like time travel plot lines so much in books because they offer some kind of escape, but also kind of a utopian vision i think kids do i think sometimes adults uh, for kids definitely for adults i think it's that plus i think adults often fantasize about oh if i could go back in time and do this differently (laughs) (laughs) and and if i could just like send myself a letter give myself like don't future self talking to past self like don't do this or or okay this is going on now but it's really okay (laughs) so i think for adults there's there's another layer but um, but for kids, I think for both. And I don't know. I've always enjoyed books, too, where they – some books um, where they'll kind of go off on, like, a different path, too. Like, you could go one or the other ways. And when I was a little kid, those were, like, choose-your-own-adventure books. But now right. – and I can't think of a book right now, but I'm thinking of the movie, like, Sliding, um, sliding doors, doors, where, like – yeah, where it takes a different path. And you can kind of see in a parallel universe how would this – turn out but I did always enjoy something with like a little bit of the a touch of the of science fiction hmm. so this was you're in elementary school about this period yes like fifth grade and then sixth grade um I did change schools and there I had a teacher who uh, just an amazing another amazing teacher who introduced us to more science fiction so we did a unit where you know we read animal farm we read 1984 we read brave new world fahrenheit 451 and i still to this day remember so many books i read in that class we also read things like a separate piece and um what was the 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 chosen different books like that too Hmm. and i think there it was done to teach us like empathy some of those books like the separate piece and to teach you empathy and um you know a perspective from a different background things like that but the science fiction books were it that just like opened my world to more to more of those kinds of things um the other thing that happened i was always an insomniac as a kid and then when we moved back to the washington dc area because i moved away and lived in new york for a while and then came back um my mom lived in this house where my bedroom right outside my bedroom in the upstairs hallway were just bookshelves of books and they were adult books but when I couldn't sleep I would just go out and grab books and start reading them which sometimes led to me reading books that some people would not find appropriate for a child (laughs) my age so for example when I was in fifth or sixth grade grade I was reading Sybil um oh wow which was a fascinating (laughs) book about a with multiple personality disorder who developed that disorder because of some you know, child sexual abuse, which probably in hindsight maybe wasn't appropriate. But mm-hmm. um, but I remember being out somewhere and having a book or something and, and someone else saying to my mom, like, what is Kathy reading, you know, and do you think that's appropriate? And my mom looking at her and just saying like, oh, it all goes over her head. And <laughs> looking back, I don't know if my mom knew that it didn't, but just wanted to shut this woman up and was fine with me reading it. Or if my mother really thought that it was all going over my head. <laughs> um, so at that point, I would also read things like I read a lot of my mom read a lot of suspense and thriller books. So then I would read she had like Sydney Sheldon um, books 
uh, I'm trying to think. So there was one called like Rage of Angels, which was about a, a young woman who becomes, you know, all these bad things happen to her. And then she becomes a trial lawyer and, you know, gets back, gets revenge on the people that did her wrong. Um, and there was another one, I think, uh, I don't know, there were different titles. And these I would sometimes reread frequently, but also some Mary Higgins Clark books, like the missing, something about the missing children or like the hand that rocks the cradle and they were all sort of suspense oh and around that same time a lot of judy bloom and then norma klein now were you reading those kind of in secret too, judy bloom and trying no judy bloom i was reading because some of them were very appropriate and those were i was reading in fact my dad gave me this is another interesting thing so my father the summer between fifth and sixth grade i spent the summer at my father's house my brother and i and i think my dad knew I was at the age where we should starting to be having talks, you know, about sex or whatever, but it wasn't the way he dealt with it, which was perfect for me. He got me books, you know, yeah. and one of the, he got me was the forever book by Judy Bloom. And then this other book, called, like nonfiction, everything you wanted to know about sex, but we're afraid to ask, um, to give me like resources. And how and did was, he present those two? Did he just say like, you know, leave them somewhere or say, Hey, Kathy, if you have some questions, check out these books. He gave them to me and said, um, and you know, I think you're at the age where this is appropriate and you should do this. But now the one thing I want to tell you is this book forever. You cannot take it to your friend's house or a slumber party. Oh, wow. He had talked to a friend of his and I think gotten this, like found out about this book or gotten advice, but the friend had given it to his daughter and his daughter took it to a slumber party and they go to pick the daughter up after the slumber party. And, you know, they pick the daughter up and whoever was hosting the slumber party, the mom like has the book and gives it to the parent and goes, and here's your book, you know, like, it's not <laughs> appropriate or appreciated. So wow. I respected that. And so he gave me those books and forever, of course, is about a, a teenager, like a high school student's first like sexual relationship. And it's, it you know, it's a two high school kids who like fall in love and have sex, but it's uh, clearly they're not married or anything like that. They're in high school, but he gave me those books and just said, um, and I thought it was interesting too, that one was like a fictional book, but the other one was very nonfiction. And he said, you know, I'm always here. If you ever want to talk, if you ever have any questions, I just, I want you to know these things because, um, you know, I just don't want you to like be in the dark or not know anything that you need to know. And so, um, it was perfect approach for me because I was not someone who would like bring those things up. And it's actually the approach I used with my own daughter later, which, <laughs> which worked. And with my own daughter, I got her books and she's like, no, she had like no interest and didn't want them. But I left them like on a bookshelf in the hall. And later I noticed they were gone from the bookshelf, you know? Mm. And so I knew that she looked at them or for whatever. And then, um, so I knew that that was a good, yeah a good approach um but and my dad had always given me but like some of the books he'd given me like every year for my birthday he would give me just like one hardback book usually and I remember one year it was like the old man in the sea um by Ernest Hemingway and then that got me to read some more Ernest Hemingway and then when I was younger one year he gave me a wind in the willows hmm. um so other I think he gave me the C.S. Narnia books so just that was just a common thing. And it was always just a special gift. Yeah. Um, and it seems so, like it was a way of maintaining or, you know, it fueled conversation and a relationship with your dad. Um, yes. Throughout your life, it seems like. And even then, and it's just now talking to you that I realized how much I carried that out with my own, with my daughter. Cause even when she was a kid, we would read to her, um, but even after that, sometimes I'll today, she's 15 now, I'll just pick up and start reading like a book that she's been reading or something like that, just to get a sense of what she's interested in um, or to have a you know something to talk to her. Not that I need to do that, but it gives us something else to talk about. Right, right. It becomes kind of a language between you, um, right. the books that you're reading. That's very interesting. That's really cool um, that, you know, that's a gift your dad gave you in a way. Yeah. Hmm. 
So it seems like all of your reading was pretty out in the open, whether it was Sybil or, you know, (laughs) um, information about sex or Forever by Judy Bloom. Like, was there any reading that you felt you had to keep secret when you were a teenager around this period? I don't know that there was just because my parents were so open to it. The one thing, the only time I would keep it a secret is if I was embarrassed about the book that I was reading. Um, And I don't think, so I remember a friend of mine gave me like the flowers in the attic book, which, which at the time I read and then looking back, it's just so creepy. But, um, so I read, and I think that was part of a series. I'm sure I read like a second or third one there. And that would have been right around the same time. So like sixth, seventh grade. Um, but I don't think there was anything. Hmm. I read and we didn't have like no one in my I never read like romance books and no one in our house really had I mean we just had more like the suspense and mystery I mean sometimes they weren't great like a lot of those weren't great literary (laughs) books you know there's some (laughs) book to be more proud to be seen with but there was never anything I had to sort of hide or pretend that I was Hmm. I I just don't think and I don't know if they just weren't really watching or you know (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Anything that kind of kept me occupied because I was always wanting more books, you know. (laughs) So what's the next period of your life that you think was really defined by your reading or your reading helped you through or to understand? I'm trying to think. So like then in, now looking back, I can't even remember a lot that I read. In high school, I read different books. I mean, we had to read books for for school and um and actually in school I read Moby Dick which I really liked and it's which is a strange book sort of to like I mean we read things like Watership Down and you know a lot of the Bronte sisters and um and Dante's Inferno now I did now I know that I'm dyslexic and I did not know that as a kid and the reading Shakespeare was really hard for me. Anything in like the old English, we had to read Beowulf in the old English and like the Iliad in the old English. And those were just, that was just like a baton death march for me to get through those books. Yeah. And in French class, we had to read things in the old French, which was you know, just <laughs> even harder. But um, now in French, I liked some of the, like we read the existentialists like uh, Satra and, um, I'm forgetting the other main playwright's name, but so I liked some of that too, which was different, but, um, it was trying to think. So then I think I did read a lot of the books for school, but on this side, I was still just pulling stuff off. I think the bookshelf and reading it at home and I would reread a lot of things just for comfort or, you know, what kinds of things were you rereading? Well, unfortunately, that was like a lot of the, not unfortunately, but that was a lot of the Americans Clark and the Sydney Sheldon kind of things that were just on the bookshelf. Mm. Um, and uh, But even with getting older, I'd still go back and reread like A Wrinkle in Time and some of those things. Yeah. And then, oh, Stephen King books. I did read Stephen King books in high school, too. So uh, the sh- a lot of the short stories, hmm. um, like the, like the state, the, um, uh, Shawshank Redemption comes from one of his short stories. And I remember that book, I think it was different seasons or something. And then the stand by me comes from one of the short stories. And I remember reading, reading those. So I think then I was reading a lot of like mystery and thrillers. Although I was also reading some like supernatural things. There was one book and for the life of me, I can't remember the author's name. I can't remember the name of the book, but I remember reading this book about a native American grows probably around my age she's probably like 15 or 16 and it talked about her dreams and sleeping at night and like astral projection and that just fascinated me there's things like that and I was always a vivid dreamer I always had vivid dreams and sometimes I would like wake up and like be kind of awake and kind of asleep and sort of see um and feel like I wasn't in my body. So when I read that book that had that experience and talked about it as like a Native American tradition, this astral projection kind of thing, it was like reassuring to me that it was something that actually existed. Right. And it wasn't necessarily something to be worried about, but maybe right. 
Because I imagine, like, was reading this story or this book the first affirmation you had of that practice or articulation of it? Because I'm imagining, say, it didn't come up in your family conversations or yes. at school or... <laughs> exactly. So, yes, it did not come up in any of my family conversations, and it did not come up in... Um, in, you know, anyone I went to school with or anything. Oh, but then now I'm going to go back for a second to the G.D. Bloom books. The the one book, um, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. One of the things in that book, it's a girl who's probably like 12, but one of her, part of her family's like Christian or Catholic and the other part's Jewish, and she's trying to figure out religion. And that was something at that age that spoke to me because my mother was reared in a Jewish family and my father Protestant. And um, after my parents divorced, my mother, her second husband was Jewish and there was like a Jewish wedding. And then we were in more of that culture. Um, and my grandparents, of course, were Jewish, but not really practicing. They just did some things. But that was a book that really made me start thinking about just different religions and looking around and trying to make sense of those things in my own life. Hmm. And did that continue with your reading life? That continued. Um, I mean, I think trying to make sense of things always continued with the religion. I don't know because I call my religious upbringing kind of religious schizophrenia because after my mom separated from that man then she became from my stepfather they divorced and then she went through a um kind of born again phase and we'd have people come to our house and um like that would try to like lay their hands on me and heal me i had asthma oh, wow. as a child and so there were a lot of just different influences mm-hmm. um and then that you know, that did, that we were sort of in that, I guess she was in that group for like a couple of years and then not after that. But um, so there were always different. I think I would look to books just to see kids dealing with different situations. Yeah. To help yeah. Deal with different situations. Hmm. That's really interesting that, you know, it kind of became a space for you to create yourself, maybe, you know, apart from you know, the culture of your respective parents' right. lives. And especially as a kid, you know, you're really just, you have so little control over what's happening to you in your life and you're, you know, taken from one place to the other. And then, I don't know, the books, you could just kind of tune everything out and have your own inner world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, off, it seems like, you know, books can offer the greatest escape sometimes, especially if you're in a situation where you can't escape your circumstances. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and then so I kind of flashed back because I remembered that one. But then um, later in high school, I read a lot of, again, these are things that my mother was reading that I got from her, but a lot of Tom Robbins, who um, wrote, uh, so I read a bunch of his books. There was like, even Cowgirls Get the Blues and Jitterbug Perfume and other roadside attraction are all different books of his. And it's hard now because I don't remember a lot of the plots, but they were just very, I mean, they were just, the books were just kind of random things put together, but woven beautifully because he was the master storyteller. But there were so many different metaphors and experiences all woven in and it was the kind of book that just kept you on your books that kind of kept you on your toes Mm. as you went through them and so that kind of that was in both in high school and in college as I went off to college those kind of things I was reading um and then later in college too I read a lot of Edward I read some Edward Abbey which uh the monkey wrench gang. And then another book by him that I loved was the fool's progress. And those were looking back. I look at this. I was like, I was reading a lot of men writers. I really should have had more. (laughs) I wish I had more women writers in there, but, um, it's, uh, those books were a lot about the West and, and the monkey wrench gang was a little about some environmental activism and things like that. And those were interesting to me. And uh, books about travel were interesting to me because I always wanted to, that's another thing I would use the books to do is travel vicariously through characters in the books. And, you know, I could read about someone that grew up in South America and pretend I 
lived in South America. Um, hmm. And why do you think the West was so interesting to you at that point? I don't know. I think it was just because it was a place I wasn't very familiar with. I hadn't spent um, any time out West. And it. I think it was uh, the writing, too, just made me like it. But um, that's a good question. I actually don't – just reading about a different uh, a different environment and mm. – people that more tied to the land. And I also in there, I did read Barbara Kingsolver um, and other, cause I would go through phases where all of a sudden I would get like on a Southwest phase. And then I would read a lot of books about the same area and go from, you know, one author to the other. And then I would get on another spin hmm. and, you know, read about like new England or the Pacific Northwest or different areas. And at that point, are you thinking of your reading as still a source of escape? Or are you trying to think about because, you know, usually in, in high school or college, people are starting to kind of think about whether in an idealist way or not, like what they want to do with their lives sort of professionally or otherwise, like is your reading at that point a space where you're thinking about that or no? So it is. It's both a space where I'm thinking physically about wanting to leave and go to a new place because I went to college in the um Shenandoah Valley of Virginia so still out east and I was definitely I think it was like my own sort of manifest destiny which <laughs> I made it as far as St. Louis but not much further but when I applied to graduate schools I applied to Washington the University of Washington in Seattle and I applied to um, I think it was Lewis and Clark and Eugene like at that point I was really focused on the Pacific Northwest I'd gone there to visit a friend and I'd read a few books about that area and um, but then ended up in St. Louis, but I was, so that's, I was reading that. And I was thinking both about like, as you said about the geographic, like landing of where I wanted to be and the kind of life I wanted and also the kind of things I wanted to be doing, um, both professionally and just in day-to-day -day life, like the, I don't know, being away from, because Washington DC, um, was just so everyone Growing up there, you had a lot of families with the Pentagon that were tied to the Pentagon. At least the kids I went to school with, a lot of them had parents in the military that were at the Pentagon and moved every few years. And then in D.C., you had all these people who were involved in politics or different administrations or worked for the federal government. And but when you went in high school and college, when you're I don't know, everyone's so focused on like what they do and who they are, and and there's a lot of power. I don't know. Posturing, that kind of thing. Yes. And so it's, it's, so there was definitely a part of me that wanted to escape that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, were you thinking about what kind of work you'd want to do professionally that was maybe say not government or, you know, uh, maybe like a cutthroat posturing type of industry, whatever that might be, or... So it's interesting. I had a love-hate relationship with that. So I would vacillate from wanting to be away from that and then thinking that I did want to do that. So I even, um, after, I'm trying to think, after, and I did spend it like a semester in Paris when I was in college. And that was fascinating. And it then that was um, when the Berlin Wall came. I was there in the fall of 1989. So I remember even going to Berlin and... And at the time, I was reading a lot of Kurt Vonnegut about um, hmm. World War II. In fact, I read so much Kurt Vonnegut that I started, I read a bunch of the books like back to back. And he had characters that would pop up from one book to the books. It wasn't a series, or but they would have the same character would show up in different books. And his sentences were so short and clipped. I started talking, you know, so be <laughs> it. And so it goes. And it was just <laughs> because I was reading so much of that, you know, Breakfast of Champions and um, Slaughterhouse-Five and so many of those books, but they were a lot of them about the war and about World War II in Germany. And then going to Berlin and seeing people right when the wall first came down, there were people lined up in, in East Berlin that just wanted to go buy groceries and go back home. I mean, they weren't escaping. They just wanted to go <laughs> someplace where they had more choices. And um, and that was just fascinating to me. So for a while, I was interested in, in doing something more international. And actually, after college, I went for I went back to D.C. and went to work for an international exchange organization. I mean, I was just like an administrative assistant or whatever. But um, at that point, I was thinking I might want to get into something more 
international. So I had that thought. And then there was also um, family law. I was interested because I'd been through a lot of divorces and things like that as a kid. And so there was part of me that was maybe interested in getting into that area and making it, I don't know, less dysfunctional. But then, you know, we'd end up doing, I also always wanted to be a writer. Growing up, I always wanted to be a writer, either a school teacher or writer as a little kid. And so I was writing, but then I think when I got to college, it just didn't seem, and I had some bad experiences in, in writing classes in school. But after that, I just, it didn't seem like practical for that to be my primary vocation. So I always thought, well, it's something I can do on the side, which is you know what I do now, but, but it's more of just a hobby. Um, and so that's kind of where I was thinking. But I think at that point, maybe I still was thinking there could be something. I was always interested in good writers. And I don't know how I never understood how any of my friends who were really avid readers, how they could read so much and have no interest in writing. It just didn't make sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it seems like reading in some for some people is a conversation that for a period of time, you're just in conversation with the authors are reading and you're thinking right. about their work. And then at some point, you literally want to start writing back to them and writing your own stories. Uh, but I guess not everyone has that inclination. I know it's funny, but all writers are, I've never met a writer who's not an avid reader. Right. You know, it's just, it goes that way, but not the other way. <laughs> hmm. Um, so, you know, when you're just starting out in your field, um, I guess you went to grad school, you said? I did. I went to law school. Oh, okay. So when you're in law school, were you writing creatively then or? So when I, oh, when I was in law school, and that's actually when I, my reading habits had to change, um, and I still at this point didn't know I was dyslexic, but I was always a very slow reader, which was fine in high school and college. And when I got to law school and was assigned hundreds of pages of reading a night, I had I had to cut myself off of novels, make a conscious decision to cut myself off of novels. And I read short stories because after I read my homework or whatever, I still needed to read something else. And I just could not, because sometimes I would get into a novel, you know, and I'm the type of person that would just stay up all night reading it and then just try to go about my day the next day. But that was no longer a workable option for me. So in law school, I actually read a lot of Raymond Carver and other uh, short story writers. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that you didn't block out fiction from your life entirely, considering how much reading you had to do for school that it still remained something that was important to you it did and it was so important for me too because I at some point I was concerned the law school was like beating the creativity out of me <laughs> but at that point I was still journaling and I even one semester I tried to take a, a like a pottery or art class or something and I think I made it to like three or four classes and then after that it was just not you know, <laughs> I had to stay caught up. Well, but, um, I'm really interested in, uh, if you don't mind talking about it, the fact that you were dyslexic and made it all the way through this level of school without knowing um, that there was something going on. I mean, did you ever have a sense that your reading was different than other people around you or, you know, that something was, you know, challenging your ability to to read in a different way? The, the only sense I had, and I think a lot of it was that I had a fundamental misunderstanding of what dyslexia was as a kid. So I never like self-identified as that. I thought it was just like you saw the letters reversed or something. But um, I was always, and my teachers would always comment, she's a very advanced reader, but she reads slowly. Mm. And then there was one year they tried to teach the whole class like speed reading where they would like flash things on the wall and you had to, and I just couldn't, and, and I was... You know, usually one of the better students and the fact that like I just there was something I just couldn't do that and finally mm. they just sort of gave up with me but at that point and back then no one took that as like oh maybe she needs to get tested that was never even questioned um and then I always had a hard time like if I had to read out loud in front of the class I would like practice if I knew I had to read I was okay but if they just like called on me to read and the teachers would always be surprised because again they knew I was reading the material and understood the material but I would stumble reading the words hmm. um, and it's just and again like with the older 
in, when when I got into that, we were reading Shakespeare and like the or in some of those things in the older English. That's the like I had to go get the Cliff's notes, and I don't even think I told the teachers. Like I was, I would never admit that I was having any kind of problem, but I would just like get the notes and then go and reread it, read the notes and read the book to stay to know what was going on. Hmm. Um, and it wasn't until I was in my 30s that it was actually discovered I um had a couple seizures and it for no fortunately that it was they they do a lot of tests just to rule out all the scary things they do MRIs and CT scans and it something showed up in those that the um that you know they became aware that I was dyslexic and now my daughter is uh dyslexic and similarly she was a really early reader and it wasn't caught well, for her, they caught it in third grade, which is much earlier than we did for me. Right. But in that, then I learned a lot about dyslexia and everything. And I realized, I'm like, oh, a lot of these things I have problems with, it's all connected. It's not, it's a much more complex thing than I thought it was um, as a kid. Like my total like, lack of sense of direction and getting things mixed up with right. direction, getting like names mixed up and things Um and different, like I'll often make mistakes. I'll, I'll call Halloween Easter and things, just things like that, that it's all part of the same. Right. Right. My brain working differently. Well, it's a testament to, I guess, how much reading mattered to you that you stayed with it, despite, you know, the, the difficulties of it, or even like the shame around admitting when you have difficulties with various parts of reading, you know, I think you're right that a lot of people think dyslexia is just mixing up the words, but it's a much broader, um, broadly defined issue. And I think, and and with my daughter, and I think it was true of me too, I saw that she was just so determined to read that her brain just came up with a workaround. And it was the same Hmm. with me, I think that it's just, you know, and because it was much easier to read, obviously something I was really interested in, you know, right, right, too. Because then it's like you just figure you just figure it out. And I would the words I would mix up were like the of, from, the, the there's little words that could almost be anything. But if you get the big words, then you know, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> uh, so you're in law school, and what are you thinking about or reading in that time period? You're reading short stories. Where do you go next in your life as a reader? So then um, I'm trying to think. So then after, and in law school too, I'm still reading like in the summer and things like that. And then I'm trying to think next in my life. Then what did, I think I was still reading a lot of, um, I don't know, I was still reading some of the like Tom Robbins and things like that, but I was, then I'm reading some, um, so the other thing I would do when I was really busy is I would read like shorter, more formulaic books. Cause I was still always reading some mysteries. And I feel like as a kid, I read like the Nancy Drews and then back before law school, I was like house sitting for someone that had these, um, Oh, Kinsey Milhone mysteries. Now I'm forgetting the author's name, but it's like A is for alibi, B is for burglar. And she goes all the way through the whole. Oh, Grafton. Yeah, yes, Sue Grafton. Grafton. And so I would read those and I would read a lot of um, Patricia Cornwell, the um, the Kay Scarpetto books where she's a medical examiner mm-hmm. and like solves mysteries by being the medical examiner. And so I would read a lot of those and I would read some um, you know, Grisham and some of the like legal, you know, more popular kind of like legal thriller books um in law school I would read more of that but I was still always reading whenever I could come across any kind of good book with you know a time travel twist so like later when the time traveler's wife came out I read that and then um god there was another book that came out like in the 80s or something it was called oh replay by Ken Grimm Grimwood I think um it's another time travel book that came in. It was a guy who just like something would happen every once in a while. He would just like wake up back in like the 1960s in his like college dorm room and he'd live his life a few times over. Hmm. But so there was always that um, plan. But then uh, back and this was actually in between college and law school when um, I was going through a difficult time. I'd, um, had a traumatic experience and it was going through PTSD and that's 
when I read the the stand by Stephen King, which bizarrely was helpful to me at a time when here I am in the throes of PTSD and and part of that PTSD was nightmares and flashes of um, an assault and then having problems like maintaining reality in my life and going back to work. At that point, I was working for the student exchange organization and those things. But it, it's at first, the book was just um, like a big, thick book just to kind of sink my teeth into and be an escape. But in the in the book, the stand in the book is about um, there's like a cold or a virus that takes over the country and everyone dies except for the like 0.05 percent that would naturally be immune to it so it's a dystopian book in that sense and that it's like there's that then like electricity goes away and all those systems that have us keep us going as a society and there were interesting themes in that book and one was that with all those things gone people's own intuition grew again like there are these muscles that had atrophied and then they had to start to use them again so People would, because they can just call someone, they'd think about someone or they'd send sort of a telepathic kind of message. And then the other thing that happened in that book is it was, it eventually becomes like a stand of good and evil. And so the people that are, I guess, sort of inherently evil started having dreams of like an evil leader that they would eventually go find in Las Vegas. And then the people that were more inherently good, I suppose, would have dreams of this you know, benevolent, good leader that they found in like Boulder, Colorado. And it was just that, as I said, I'd always had vivid dreams. And here, my dreams had always been something like helpful to me in life. And then having the PTSD, they really became more nightmares. And for the first time, it was like in my own personal life, my dreams had sort of turned against me. Mm. Um, But then I read this book, which you know, had this theme of the dreams. And at the time, I hadn't consciously picked it. I didn't know anything about it. All I knew was here was a Stephen King that had just been re-released with like extra pages, um, the unabridged version. And so it was like the hot thing at the time. And had I, you had you read this book before? No, I hadn't read it before. So I had never mm-hmm. read the, the shorter version. I, I didn't know anything really about it when I picked it up. Um, and And then, you know, I think it, I read it and it's a huge book. I think I read it in like three or four, five days maybe. But um, then after that, as I was going through this and trying to like get back to work and do all these things, I had this amazing dream and I dreamt that I was in walking through caverns, like Luray Caverns, which we have out in the Shenandoah, you know, where they have the stalactites and the stalagmites and you're kind of walking through this like cave and looking at everything. And I'm by myself and I'm walking through and I hear this, woman's voice ahead of me that's a very like confident reassuring voice and I'm just following her and I trust this voice and I'm thinking I'm like that voice sounds so familiar and I can't place it and then the woman walks by um, some water and there's a reflection in the water and I see her and it's me it's Mm. an older version of myself and that was just such that dream is what I attached all kind of meaning to that dream and it's what sort of got me out of that dysfunctional phase. And in looking back on it, it's just fascinating to me that here I was reading this book about dreams and people following the dreams. And of all things, it's like Stephen King. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think very few people would guess that anyone would turn to Stephen King, you know, after going through something so terrible and so awful and trying to find a way forward. I mean, to go from a horrifying experience to like a horror book as sanctuary <laughs> just doesn't make sense on any level. But it it truly was. And it also inspired, I mean, it inspired, again, my creativity, too, and just getting in. I, I found an old journal a couple of years ago. I, my mom had sent me like a bunch of my stuff when she moved out of her house and it was just in boxes. And I found a journal of mine back from high school. And I was looking back and I was like, oh, I did. I wrote down my dreams, which I still do today. And I'd forgotten that I'd done it back then because I've gone in and out of things like that. And on the front, I wrote, you know, dreams, like cryptic postcards from my subconscious. (laughs) I thought about it like, that's so true, you know, (laughs) and I had that and I really looked, you know, I attached a lot of meaning to those. And I looked at that and that was just a really helpful thing for me at the time. 
Yeah. I mean, do you think that reading that dream then, reading the Stephen King book in some way inspired the dream or it just gave you a consciousness about dreams, you know, the importance of dreams to your life that when you had that dream, you were uh, more open to receiving it or thinking about it? Right. I don't, I think that reading that book, I think in some ways it did. I think reading that book made me more open to it. And I think it made me, because I think I was thinking about the fact that I was having nightmare and thinking like, why can't I have, you know, I think I was like asking the universe, like, why can't I have a good dream? Like I've been having these nightmares, like I'm ready for something good. Like I need, and, and so I was, I think it was all of that. And I think that the book had me thinking about, you know, oh, we can have bad dreams. We can also have good dreams. Like you can have those. It just put that in a context for me. Um, and then these dreams became like vehicles in the story and they became things that motivated people to take different actions. Um, and so whether that was just subconscious or, I mean, it, it I think it did play a part and motivate that, but I don't know that it was, who knows? I don't know how the brain works. Right. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it just amazing that, um, dreams have been so important in your life and that, you know, in this moment you had, were able to have a dream that, you know, made you feel empowered, um, at a moment when you really needed to feel that way. Yeah. And the, the other, um, and that's another, you know, I talked about the time travel. I think of also books, any book that's about like the one I told you about that. I don't, I tr- searched too before we had this conversation for any way I could figure out that book about the native American girl who, which I think I got from my high school library. Like, I don't even think I ever owned the book or knew the author or anything with that astral projection thing. So I've al- also always been drawn to any books that talk about where dreams are an active part of the, the story. Um, mm-hmm. And it's because that did ring true to me because I've always had, as I said, always very vivid dreams that I, that I would write down. And, and I've had dreams of, you know, like loved ones that I've lost that have been very vivid to me and that um, have, when they happen, like life changing sort of, mm. you know, they have like exponential effects. And so it's, um, that's been something that I've, I've, looked as I said I've always looked to fiction to kind of now sometimes I'll turn to nonfiction as an adult but I always look to fiction to make sense of those things wow hmm. can you think of any other books you were reading at that time to help you through that really tough time so I'm oh, and I just thought of one so at that time I was reading after that what else was I reading I read I was reading a lot of short stories then too and then I was reading, I think I reread things just for kind of comfort too. Like I went back and read Catcher in the Rye and then I read more um, of the short stories by uh, Salinger and, hmm. but other, because then I did read more Nave. I mean, that's when I did get into some like Barbara Kingsolver and I did, that's when I read some Toni Morrison too. Um, after that, I read like Beloved and um, what was the other one? The bluest eye or different things I was reading then. Um, What did Toni Morrison's work, you know, mean to your life at that point? Then I remember I was reading Toni Morrison, actually my first year in law school. So before I had to switch out of the fiction, this is when it was in the very beginning when I thought I could still do both, but it was just empowering, like taking, and this is still in the aftermath of my own experiences, but taking like pain and trauma and turning it into power and strength. And I think that's why her books, um, how, why I responded to those and why those spoke to me was taking because of that. Yeah. I mean, I think the reason I ask is because I've read a lot of accounts of people who, you know, like you have gone through something so terrible and, and find in her work and in her representation of similar things, you know, feelings of pow- feeling empowered, you know. And, and it's been a while. I think Beloved is one where she's got like a scar on her back. I'm trying to remember which book that was. And the scar was from, you know, a traumatic experience. But then it becomes this like source of, of strength and power, just that physical manifestation of the trauma becoming that. Um, and so that's 
Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, you mentioned reading Salinger and and Stephen King and, and Salinger in particular, I think people think of as, you know, a voice of of characters who are um, frustrated with the world or don't feel right. heard or and then to move to Toni Morrison, who has similar feelings of people who n- not necessarily feel like they fit in, like the bluest eye, um, the character and the lead character in the bluest eye, but also feelings in a sense of power um, right. from challenges. Which reminds me, some of the other books in high school I didn't, I forgot to mention were um, the the Outsiders and um, you know, Rumblefish and, oh, what's her, her, her name's on the tip of my tongue. Um, but the woman that wrote those was, you know, she was 17 when she wrote The Outsiders. And so that was something I always, as a kid, that, um, I, that was like inspiring to Essie Hinton. That was yeah. inspiring to me and that she came from that world and told those stories. Um, yeah. And, you know, I mean, as in your life as both a reader and a writer, which I think are two connected things. Do you feel that, you know, you're seeking out now stories that reflect your experience or are you still, you know, looking to escape or both? it's both and sometimes not at the same time you know sometimes I'll pick a book that's just like clearly an escape but actually even in the escape books I have to find myself because it's not truly an escape unless I feel like I could actually take that escape which Hmm. maybe is counter (laughs) but but it's I still even in in characters that aren't at all like me you know I still look for I still look for that and it's more recently um, and after becoming a parent, so much of my reading was through my daughter. Like I read all the Harry Potter books. That's what I read after law school. Hmm. I read the, um, Harry Potter books before I had kids. But then when my daughter was born, I'm reading them. So she, she was I'm trying to think when the last book came out, she was born, she was little. And then like, my husband had gone to get the book because I was going to go get it at midnight or whatever the seventh book but I had to stay home with her because he was meeting friends so on the way home at like you know one in the morning he stopped by the bookstore and picked it up and brought it home and then I just stayed up all night reading it and my daughter the next day was fascinated and demanded you know that we read the first one to her (laughs) and so then that started that and we would read it to her and then you know it's like okay it's time for bed and then you'd hear her footsteps like get up and scamper across the room and you'd hear this little light click on and she'd be back in bed still reading it um but uh then after that so then I went through it was almost like a renaissance of my own childhood books because then I was rereading a lot of my favorites to to her Hmm. and did you find that when you re when you reread a book with your child or um recommend one that it's reading a different book now that you're a parent (laughs) I did. And I, you realize, so I'd read as a kid, like all the, um, little house in the prairie books and things like that. And then some of them, when you reread them and like some of the boxcar, the Bobsy twins and boxcar children books, when you're rereading them to your daughter, you realize, Oh my goodness, these, there's really some like racist language in these, which (laughs) I didn't think about, which, you know, now we view as racist. And when Mm -hmm. they were written in like the forties and fifties, I'm sure it was just common. And so now (laughs) you're cringing. So you, you see it differently. You're looking at it through older, you know, more worldly eyes and eyes of a different time. And, and also the, um, the different ways we, in books now, some of the older books would talk about, um, you know, homosexuality or, or anything that veered from like classic heterosexual relationships. And so that's one thing too, I've seen a huge in rereading some of the books um from when I was a kid there's I mean a lot of that just wasn't even discussed or mentioned but sometimes there would be a use of you know that's gay or that's queer or something and you look at it now and it's like oh it's not necessarily the way it was used is different than it would be talked about today or there's a different um you just get more diverse characters I think in some of today's books right right and do you see in your daughter that she gravitates to books for different reasons than say you did as a child I mean you talked about um liking that series that made you feel like you and your brother could be okay yeah you know and 
you know, is her motivation different? And what's that like for you as a parent? So in some ways, her motivation is the same, but it's different topics. Like she definitely goes to books to find herself. And um, for example, she has um, synesthesia, where you'll see where the senses get cross and like you'll see colors in music or like letters have colors for her like letters have colors to them and Mm -hmm. um I wasn't really familiar with this but there are a couple books as a kid and you know we started noticing this that she really responded to there's one called like a mango shaped space and there's another um what's the other book I think it's called out of my mind out of my something like that I wish I could remember that one but that book is about um a girl who has I forgot what her disability is but she can't like talk she has to use a computer to communicate with people and in the book she talks about like the different colors and the different things that she sees and so in the same way I was looking to books to help me figure out like how to deal with my kind of chaotic sometimes chaotic childhood or the religious thing with are you there, God, it's me, Margaret, or the, you know, taking care of my brother with the mixed up files book. She was turning to books to make sense of her synesthesia. And so there were a couple of books like that. So it was, um, and when I put, and I don't know that I ever consciously put that together, but I think I intuitively knew what she was doing because I'd done it. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And so, and I think even in my own writing, um, thinking that, Whenever she had an issue, that's why I would go to the bookstore and ask, I would ask, you know, I would go to our independent bookstore and ask the um, bookseller, okay, I think my daughter's struggling with this. Do you have a book about a kid with dyslexia who's trying to make sense of it? Do you have a book about, um, I don't know, like any, someone with some anxiety issue or something like it? Because I thought it would be intuitively my way to help her was to help her find a a book with a fictional character triumphing over whatever she might have. For example, in the, um, like she read all the Percy Jackson books in the, that Reardon wrote. And in those books, it's the kids that are like, that have ADHD and, and dyslexia are the ones that are really like, you know, the sons of God, Greek gods and goddesses or the demigods, you know? Mm. And so taking those things and then them become, kind of empowering instead of disabling and finding that in, in fiction. And so she did that way. I think that's just what naturally occurred to me. So that's how I've watched that happen in with her and sort of the next generation here. Hmm. That's really wonderful. What a gift to give to your daughter. Um, I don't want to take up too much of your time. So I guess I'm just wondering, you know, if maybe in closing, you'd like to maybe tell us what your life as a reader is like now and, and what kinds of things are speaking to you. Yeah. So, um, and I know you've done some of your podcasts with, uh, independent bookstores too. So as a reader now it's, we have a bookstore, the novel neighbor here in Webster Groves where, um, it's kind of like my reading home (laughs) and um and so I find a lot of you know the things I'm reading I go to them as like a resource in addition to our wonderful public libraries but um now I read more nonfiction than I used to sometimes now I I turn to nonfiction to make sense of my world but I also and now I go through phases because I get overwhelmed by life and can't read for a while and then I'll go on a binge and and read a bunch of different things but I'm as I said, now I read a lot of the things that my daughter is reading to kind of keep tabs. Um, and just because they're really good books and she's, she always, she's such an avid reader now and reads so much more than I have time for that. It's almost like she can be my like editor too, or like, tell me like, okay, yeah, don't waste your time with that one or read this one. I think you'd like it. Um, and, uh, um, my husband, of course, is an avid reader too. So I get ideas from him. He really loves the, um, the magician's book by a uh, Lev Grossman. And so he's always reading that, rereading that. And then, um, just anytime I 
I use it to learn too about things I'm curious about and don't have time to study. It's easier. I'll say I don't have time, but I'll take the time to read a book because that's just more enjoyable. Hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm wondering, uh, is there a book maybe that your daughter has not read that you hope you can share with your daughter going forward? That's a good question. Um, I think most of the things I've already gotten her to read, although I'm trying to think. And it's funny because I was thinking about the, um, because the times when people have thought something was uh, inappropriate, you know, with the, I can't, my daughter has always wanted to read books and there have been a few times where I have said, okay, no, I don't think you're ready for that. And then um, waited, but usually she wears me down and then she reads them anyway. But I'm trying to think if there's one. I don't know. There's just so many good books out there. I can't think of one off the top of my head. Well, maybe she'll um, um, end up reading something that you write. Yeah, I know. At this point, I don't think she'd be. It just because, she's at that age now where just because I wrote it probably wouldn't be interested. But maybe she will. That would be a good. That would be a good thing. Yeah, that'd be wonderful. Well, uh, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been really amazing. And I know that, you know, sharing tough things is, is really difficult. And I just really appreciate how open you've been with us today. Thank you for having me. I know a lot of the guests you've had have been other like podcast people or more professional people and not just everyday random people like me, but it's been wonderful. Hey, everyday people like you is exactly who I want on this show. Um, so you've been really great. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to thank our guest, Kathy, for sharing her story with us. I'd also like to thank our technical director, Taylor, for all her help. You can follow us on Instagram at chapters pod there you'll find Shelby's submitted by our guests. You can find us on Twitter at ChaptersPod. You can find me at MaryMahoney123 and Taylor at MJTThePhD. Visit our website www.chapterspod.com if you'd like to share your story on Chapters. You can also find links to every book mentioned on this and every episode on our website. If you enjoy our show, please rate and review us in the iTunes store. It really helps listeners find our show. Thank you for listening.